0: Good morning, this is Dr. Daniel Jake Guerra uh, this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 30th day of October, 2023. Uh, last lecture, we were starting to talk about these extracellular cysteine proteases from Porphyromonas gingivalis, uh, which is a oral bacterium that may be linked to pancreatic cancer in humans and these proteases we were discussing are called gingipanes and um, let's complete that discussion so remember that we were just getting involved discussing the fact that there are multiple protein domains remember in proteins we don't talk about the evolution of a polypeptide according to simple sequence variation We talk more about domains that arise in the protein that are typically structural and or functional domains. So, for example, the distinction there just on the um, generic hierarchy, you can have (laughs) two structural domains in a polypeptide. They come together after folding of the protein into its mature state that are not normally adjacent to each other. That is, they're not proximal distal association along the polypeptide chain. But the bringing together of those two structural domains has to do with the entire, what I call fine length of the polypeptide as it's taking on its conformation its solution conformation via biophysical interactions with the solvent system and the protein itself so <clears throat> when those two in in this hierarchical description here structural domains come together that could generate a catalytic domain where for example, antigen can bind to an antibody, or a protein which is a substrate for proteolytic activity of the structurally domain polypeptide we're discussing comes together. That could be where the substrate binding site is on the target protein for proteolytic degradation. would be called, that's uh, now not a structural domain. The coming together two structural domains is called a functional domain. What's the function? The catalytic site. So there's been an argument in protein chemistry for quite a long time, I would say probably 50 years or more, about protein speciation. Now, you could use the word evolution, but that term is too loosely um, prescribed to a lot of things in chemistry, even I think in physics, and even in biology, where the term evolution suggests that there's some kind of, well, let's think about it: selection pressure for a given species of protein to have a specific sequence, and therefore carry out a specific function. Well, way back 50, over 50 years ago, people were saying, in the uh literature that now it's not the sequence that's evolving it's the structural and or functional domains that are evolving and of course you know this too from many discussions we've had in biochemistry lecture graduate biochemistry lecture when we talk about NAD binding or we talk about atp binding cassettes those are those two there would be called functional domains and they're composed of a whole uh, string of amino acids in a specific sequence, uh, but they don't necessarily have to be contiguous. Say now when that that is the rule. Now whether or not those domains evolve as domains is yet another story, because when you look at proteins that have multiple cassettes that carry out a function that are found in other proteins that are Otherwise, not related. Say a fatty acid synthesis uh, polypeptide uh, might have similar domains for binding uh, NAD or NADPH. That a protein like the uh, fox uh, uh, enzyme we we're just talking about might have a similar domain for binding NADPH. You see, but fatty acid synthesis—what does it have to do with? <laughs> the um, oxidation of ADPH to production of reactive oxygen, see, Uh, in terms of that function, hardly nothing. So the argument is how could that be an evolutionary convergence, right? Or even an evolutionary divergence during evolutionary or speciation-mediated events for those proteins to show up in the cell. So... Yet, we know that those domains do get um, shuffled around. And by that, I mean, think about introns and exons. So those domains do often, particularly structural domains, do often reside in one specific exon, which means that during intron, exon during the um, the modification of, the DNA for a level of transcription, okay, when you're getting splicing out of the introns for the gene to be expressed into a specific transcript, right, wouldn't the selection pressure be more involved in that area? And it's likely if there is selection pressure, it would be found there because that's when you end up with the structural and then perhaps functional domains and of course functional domains are derivative of the structural domains right and so once again then you're talking about so-called evolutionary pressure on transcription then you might have to go back and look at just transcription factors or what we often talk about with histones modification of histones or you know epigenetic uh, modification of histones See, so then, so there are multiple levels of integration of possible p- potential selection. And that's a key feature that is often lost on people that are evolutionary biologists because it, because it's assumed that evolution is caused by relatively simple uh, ideas, such as selection pressure to survive in a specific environment. Now, if it's that simple, how could transcription itself, something so general, be the key target for that selection pressure? Obviously, it wouldn't just be transcription. You know, we talk about the mechanism of transcription all the time, right? You have to have DNA unwinding. You have to have all these single-stranded binding, proteins binding. You have to have transcription factors, a whole solution chemistry of transcription factors assembling in the nucleus binding to response elements in the DNA, opening up the DNA, then you need RNA polymerase too, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You haven't even started making a transcript. So it is obvious that what's going on is that many, many, many of the things you see inside the cell don't argue for a chemical evolution of all of these species. They more argue, I would, I would claim, On the level of cellular integrity and cellular homeostasis, and also cellular reproductive capacity. Right, and so these proteins that we see all these multiple characteristics and functions for have something more to do with the original development of life from non-life, and of that we have basically no data in research science. So let me go back to these. Uh, th- that was just something I wanted to bring up. So these ging remember from porphyromos gingivalis, product of three genes. Now, this is in the is in bacteria, okay? Two coding for an arginine-specific, those are the RGPA and B, and one for a lysine-specific protease. So you see that these proteases have specific targets, right? That is, that would be the substrate for these proteases. And the protease domains of RGPA and B are identical, but the gene encoding the first enzyme is missing a large segment coding for a domain known as the hemagglutinin adhesion domain. That's about what we were, I think, when we got um, unceremoniously cut off. Now, that latter domain are present also in another coding gene known as KGP. So the tertiary structure of RGPB, which was revealed uh, through the the protease domain, that's a functional domain of the gingipane, has shown a protein fold that is um, similar to what's known as a caspase hemoglobinase fold. All right. Caspase, an enzyme, another protease we often talk about, in um, program cell death. And of course hemoglobinase has to do with uh, the degradation of hemoglobin, right? And that would be the globin protein in the hemoglobin, of course. So they say in this paper that they may be evolutionary related. Again, at the domain level. You also have a lot of other proteases that have similar um, domains. So ca- the caspases, as I said, a protein called separase, and proteins called lugubanes or legumanes, excuse me, legumanes, first discovered in higher plants, but also have um, orthologs in uh, animals. So back to the gingipains; They're produced by a large pre-protein, and they are subject themselves to proteolytic activation. Besides that, there are also requirements to prepare the protein for secretion, and that involves glycosylation. And then domains in the protein are required for activation and maturation processes. Now, how gingipanes traverse the membrane, that is the plasma membrane, isn't quite worked out yet. But it's believed to use an auto transporter pathway. So during transport through the periplasm, it's the bacteria. Remember, the LPS, lipopolysaccharide-like glycan moiety, is added to a conserved carboxy-terminal portion of the pro gingipain, and then at the cell surface, surface. Pro-gingipanes fold again into a partially active single-chain zymogen, just a the term for a protein before it's activated. And then they undergo, these proteins, these pro-gingipanes, the autocatalytic intermolecular protease processing. So two sequential cleavages within the profragment domain enhance zymogen activity And in the case of the RGPA and the KGP, this is followed by excision of the individual HA domains. Remember, those are the hemagglutinin adhesion domains. Now, these domains are then cut back at the carboxy terminus by a concerted action of KGP itself, that protein which is going to become a a card-carrying (laughs) Ginger pain, <laughs> and another enzyme more common, uh, just a carboxypeptidase. And then that forms a non covalent multi domain, multifunctional complex anchored on the outer membrane by the glycated C terminal HA domain. So is a reasonable way to understand how this whole thing is put together. Now, the structure of the RGPB in complex with a uh, synthetic substrate which is the ffrcmk so people often when they're looking at proteases they just make peptides that because the peptide has the same sequence as found in the normal target protein substrate protein they're just easier to use and manipulate so this ffrcmk uh, it requires a little bit of uh, definition because you should know those what those letters stand for, single letters for amino acids, but it's phenylalanine, phenylalanine, arginine, and then chloromethyl ketone. Now, there's an inhibitor for that domain proteolysis. And using that inhibitor, it's defined a very specific active site. And the active site is formed by, here's another example of how proteins fold a histidine 211 and a cysteine 244. Okay? So obviously, those two amino acids are relatively close, but they are not uh, next to each other in the polypeptide sequence. And uh, that's all in subdomain B. So this cysteine histidine. Catalytic dyad binds and cleaves, and the arginine, and then whatever after the arginine is cleaved off. So it's called an X and then AA substrate. So the residue arginine forms uh, in that synthetic substrate FFRCMK forms a covalent bond with cysteine 244, that gamma sulfur group, via its methylene. And the side chain carboxylic acid group of residue uh, D163 in RGPB forms a salt bridge with a guanodinal group of the arginine of that inhibitor. So see, this is how we learn about how the catalytic domain is put together, by using inhibitors. Not all enzymes have these inhibitors. So you have a lot of hydrogen bonding obviously occurring and it's gonna to connect to the inhibitor as well as to the substrate. And we don't need to go into all of that, but there's hydrogen binding to at least three other amino acids. There's also a zinc ion at the oxidation state of plus two, and that's observed at the active site, and it interacts with um, the histidine-211. So, um, But it's only in one of the RGP, Subdomains. There's a whole lot of other uh, discussion we can get into here. And all that work that I just told you about determining the activity of the enzyme, but why am I doing all this? Because it's authentic biochemistry. So we might as well know the details of the, uh, not just the function of what we're talking about in terms of biomedical portraits, but actually uh, the overall very specific uh, subunit chemistry. Uh, anyways, all that came from a paper published back in two, 2011, 2011 right? so good reason to read older papers. Now, back to some biology. Periodontal infection is associated also with cardiovascular disease, so we're still going towards that teleological target of pancreatic cancer and P. gingivalis. But I want you to understand that when you look at the literature, which is, of course, what I do for a living, you're going to find that there are lots of other diseases that could be linked to other, um, or to other or similar causal, and I should say correlative agents such as the PG intervallis. So you've got periodontal infection associated with CBD. You know that atherosclerosis, of course, major pathophysiology and CBD. So that means it's an inflammatory response. And you also know, if you listen to my lectures, that it has to do with macrophages being diapodised into um, the um, vasculature, along with lipoproteins that are in the macrophages or brought in separately into the vasculature. Remember that? Remember the lipoproteins don't, don't come in unless they're oxy lipoproteins. Those are the more common ones because of membrane disruption and all the reasons I explained to you before about the composition of the lipid. Remember the sphingomyelin, ceramide, cholesterol triad of concentrations, altering membrane uh, fluid dynamics and then allowing for oxysterols to enter into that system and cause a pathophysiology, or at least be associated with it. All this within, of course, like I said, the arterial wall. So you have the modified low-density lipoprotein that would be the oxy, and it exerts um, multiple potentiation of macrophage activation. Including production, transcription, and activation of macrophage, Fox gene expression, and what's that going to do? It's going to oxidize NADPH. It's going to generate reactive oxygen. So that can support the atheroma production, and 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 it's the atheroma that starts the cardiovascular disease in that particular arterial wall. Okay, So with that, you're going to get an increase in the expression of adhesion molecules. And that's going to allow for leukocyte adhesion, like the leukocytes we're talking about, like neutrophils. And you're going to get further chemotaxis because chemokines are generated. And this, of course, is all going to lead to an injury in the endothelial cells. That's going to enhance foam cell formation. Remember, that's the whole process where the macrophage starts generating high levels of cytokines and chemokines and reactive oxygen and i should also mention icosanoids that generate a destruction of that cellular matrix the macrophage matrix causing what on microscopy looks like a foam foamy uh cell so that's why it's called foam cell formation you also get increased smooth muscle cell and fibroblast proliferation, and a continuous release of pro-inflammatory mediators, including extracellular matrix, matrix, uh, matrix proteases, as well as um, the, the all-important toll-like receptors on macrophages, resonant macrophages or resident neutrophils that will recognize those pathogen or host-associated molecular patterns and turn on, again, a pro-inflammatory response, okay? So you get to where we are there. Now, go back to the bacterial biofilm. Remember we told you last time that's a primary etiologic agent in periodontitis, okay? And remember the bacteria we're talking about, porphyromonas, gingivalis, is that keystone pathogen. It has all these potent virulence factors, like the gingipains, And that's a proteolytic enzyme and it's capable of, ho- of degrading host proteins. So this is a very important component why I went through that whole catalytic domain of the gingipains, so that you understand that people have been looking at targeting the gingipains. Because if you can target the pains, you can target their proteolytic activity. Remember I told you it was an inhibitor they were using. If you can target their proteolytic activity, you're removing one of, you're, you're facultatively and functionally removing one of the virulence factors of P. gingivalis. Now, does that always work? No, it doesn't, okay? So obviously this is a much larger uh, picture in this pathophysiology. It doesn't work that very significantly because there's a lot of other virulence factors. And because making potent inhibitors of that reaction will lead to um, non recognized but now significant events, both events that occur upstream from targeting that protease, that, that, uh, that this particular protease from a P. gingivalis. Or any the ginger pain, anything downstream from that. Okay, so you get a whole picture here now. Obviously, the host-pathogen interaction in periodontitis itself is very destructive. We talked about bone erosion uh, last lecture, I believe, and I told you that it exposed also the biofilm directly to the bloodstream so when that occurs in the oral cavity you start to see an ulceration of the gingival epithelium this is uh, the product of oxidative stress Uh, and remember the because of the fox gene activity getting a lot of reactive oxygen you're also getting proteolytic enzymes some which we've already talked about and this leads again to both periodontitis and because of the hyper inflammatory response happening in the oral cavity and the fact that these pathogens can now enter the bloodstream and can therefore make it to any organs in the body it can lead to an atherosclerotic involvement okay so p gingivalis as we know is a broad range of virulence factors Besides what I've already told you, P-gingivalis also produces lipopolysaccharide. And you know, there's a very specific toll-like receptor that binds lipopolysaccharide, thus inducing an immune response. And that can occur, yeah, in the cardiovascular system. So remember that P-gingivalis also produces adhesins, hemagglutinins, and as we've been seeing all these proteolytic enzymes. And these panes, of course, which are, they're essential for bacterial survival within the host. So knockouts of panes and P. gingivalis prevent infection, all other things being equal. And this is, of course, done basically in animal models and also in um, just looking at cell cell infection, right? So looking at cell culture. So you have two types of cysteine proteases that have trypsin-like activity in P. gingivalis. And so (laughs) these, again, are the KGP, which is lysine-specific, and the RGP, which is the arginine-specific. So they have different, as obviously stated, you have different uh, cleavage sites, right? And so the development of atherosclerosis closely linked to periodontal disease and periodontal pathogens is an obvious axis of interest when we're thinking about cardiovascular disease which is very uh, lethal in humans now we'll bring in the other player and we well we've already introduced it now we'll talk more detail the the fact that you have an oxy ldl in the system and that also plays a role in this atherogenesis okay and so we've you know pretty much i think covered what we're talking about here the the mechanisms for atherosclerosis then require this pathogen pgengivalis which comes from a an already developed periodontal, periodontal disease and then a link up to the Innate immune system. Okay. And this is all going to establish the appropriate level of inflammation to generate an atherosclerotic plaque. Now uh, uh, the oxy LDL is probably linked to, and I've said it many times in a lecture, the very early stages of atherosclerosis before you actually see atheromas. Um But the the same can be said about during the progression of the atheromogenesis and atherosclerosis now being a fully active inflammatory system. So there are changes in the endothelial permeability and composition of the extracellular matrix. And that will promote the entry, remember this is what I said about 20 minutes ago, of oxyLDL particles directly into the arterial wall. Now, monocytes are quick to follow. This would be your whole discussion of the macrophages, which I just finished a long discussion of in the previous arc of lectures. So we don't really need to go into this in any uh, gruesome detail, but you know, you have this whole subendothelial, extracellular matrix interaction in- involving an internalization or diapedesis of macrophages and yes neutrophils and this is indeed a common um symptom in atherosclerosis so let's get into some detail here you also have that mentioned this before paraoxonase pon1 pon1 remember is an antioxidative enzyme that is found associated with HDL high density lipoprotein. So any alteration in the level of PON1 in circulation occurring during oxidative stress could be a potential for the defense mechanism to slow down atherosclerosis. So when you get this, perfect storm of pathogenic, environmental, lipoprotein-mediated responses to generate reactive oxygen in a specific location, such as in the cardiovascular system, you're going to be detecting also high levels of, with the reactive oxygen, high levels of antioxidants. You're also going to find a lot of oxidation products of lipids, proteins, and DNA.